Ben, are you ready to start or allow a few more people to join? Hey, Ali, it's good to see you. Yeah, yeah. No, actually, why, why don't we start um, if anybody who's up here has a question, we'd start with that. Oh, okay. Ashvin, do you, do you want to get started? Well, I have a question, but why yeah. don't we let one of our guests get started first? Ashvin, David, Margaret, Jules, do you guys have a question for Ben or Ali or Kes? If there isn't a specific topic, I'm curious about the sort of company policies, like maybe Ali, like are you are you gonna require people to get a vaccine before they get back to the office? Just jumping off of Gurdjieff's topic. Yeah, great question. Um, I think that uh, there's a lot of uncertainty on what will happen in the future. So what I've told the company from the beginning, uh, contrary to what we always tell them, we wanna be innovators, we wanna be first movers, we wanna sort of, you know, have first mover advantage, but I've said on the reopening strategy, we want to be in the opposite end. So we're going to mostly watch what others do and we're going to preserve as much optionality as we can because everything is a one-way door here. Like it's, you know, if you tell, hey, we can hire everywhere and we can go back, then it's going to be hard to change things around. Uh, so we're kind of going slow on this. So no, we haven't, there's no rules for vaccines or anything, but we're also not like reopening anytime soon. So we're going very slow with this. Yep, I think that makes sense. Thanks. And feel free to move me down to the audience. I'm excited to listen. <laughs> yeah, right. Thanks. Thanks, Margaret. So, Ben, can I open with a question for Ali real quick? Sure. Um, so, Ali, I really loved the conversation uh, last week. It was amazing. And one of the big uh, cultural values was truth-seeking that you so beautifully explained. What about folks in the audience who have created their companies and they're having major issues in their companies now. And they listened in on this clubhouse conversation that really gave them a great roadmap on how to roll things back in politically. How do you implement this truth-seeking cultural value uh, if it wasn't part of the original plan and things are running a bit amok at this point? That's a great question. Um, obviously, I didn't have to do that because I was co-founder from the beginning. So I didn't have to come into an existing company or make drastic changes. Uh, but um, I think uh, the best of the advice I have is actually to read Ben's book, to be honest, uh, you know, uh, um, and, you know, walk the talk, basically. Uh, start by really enacting the cultural principles you want and make examples out of them. And then people will take notice. And then you can just yeah. slowly start inserting that uh, into the company, but, you know, make an example out of it. Like if, you know, if there's something that's really off, make sure that you really sort of explicitly show the whole company, maybe even give it a name, you know, give it a principled name, just like Ben suggested in his book. We have many of those things uh, at Databricks. Uh, and then slowly people will start asking, what is that thing? And then over time, you can slowly introduce the culture principle. I don't think you should shock the system. And one day just say, hey, we have a new culture principle. From now on, we're going to change and we're going to be this way. Uh, just sl slowly start behaving that way. I don't know if that's uh, how you see it, Ben. I mean, you wrote the whole book on this. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Like, I think that's a good point. Look, you, you always have to be careful when you make a cultural change that you don't create a culture of hypocrisy. And if you just say, we always tell the truth after, you know, even when the news is bad and you haven't ever done that, then you really run that risk. So I agree with that. I actually had this problem... Um, you know, where we didn't put it in and then I had to put it in after the fact when um, 
uh, we were at Opsware. And the thing that I did that actually worked pretty well, um, which I definitely would recommend is, you know, part of it is people don't want to bring you bad news, right? Like, so the things that are wrong or broken or screwed up in a company, and this isn't quite get to the full truth seeking of Databricks, but are always known. Like, there, there's never something wrong in your company and nobody knows, like, and you just get surprised. Um, like, that 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 never happens. Somebody always knows, you know, like, what's wrong if you're screwing something up, if, you know, somebody's faking the data, if, like, all that is always known. Um, the problem is they don't tell you. <laughs> and so to get around that, um, you know, which we had had this problem, we grew very fast and, you know, it just the culture got off, certain executives discouraged, that kind of thing. Um, and I just said, look, in order to come to my staff meeting and, and staff meeting as you grow kind of becomes a privileged thing that you get to go to the executive staff meeting and everybody wants to be in it. So I said, like, in order to come to staff meeting, you have to come with something that's really broken in the company. Um, and you have to find out, like, there's so much stuff, you know, everywhere that we're doing wrong. You, If you can't find out what it is, then, like, you don't belong in staff meeting. And so what that did was it just got us to kind of get really used to talking about problems, things that were broken, things that we were wrong about. Um, and then that kind of moved the culture to a point where, oh, guess what? Like if we have bad news, like that's great. Let's, that means we can fix the problem. So it's kind of changed the meaning of, you know, the truth to something that was scary because we weren't what like we said we were in our PR to, oh, no, this is something good because it can, like, help us fix the company. But great question, Felice. That's awesome. Thanks. Let's get started, then. Okay. All right. So we're going to start with a strategy question, Ellie. So, look, these days, every company, every new company has to build on AWS or Azure or GCP. Um, but increasingly... Guess who your competitors are? Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. Um, so how do, you, how do you deal with that? And then how did Databricks deal with it? And, and then more specifically, like why did you do your first partnership deal with Microsoft and Azure rather than AWS or GCP? Okay, that, those are great questions. Uh, I'll break them apart. Um, you know, I mean, from early moment, uh, we realized that Basically, all of our sales is going to be a channel sale. In other words, every customer of Databricks will be also a customer of one of these cloud vendors. So that means they have disproportionate power. Uh, yes. So there's three players that basically are going to have enormous, maybe four with Alibaba, that are going to have a massive, massive power over the next many years. And very early on at Databricks, I had a friend that worked at one of these cloud companies. So I'll tell you a story. And we're having uh, dinner and... And he told me that he hated this third party. And he was a sales guy at one of these companies. And he said he hated uh, this other data company. And I said, why? <laughs> he said, well, every, you know, every time they sell something, they're taken away from the services I'm selling. You know, so I make less huh. money. Um, so I realized, I see. So like, basically, you have a whole army of sellers in these cloud companies. And every time yeah. another vendor like Databricks shows up and sells something, 
they make less money because they could have sold their service and made money on it. Ah, instant so, you know, Yeah. So like we're, so, you know, it doesn't really even matter what partnerships we strike, what we do, what we say in the press. If you have a whole army of sellers that hate you, there's no way you're going to be able to sell against them. And they're in every account you're in. So from the very beginning of Databricks, we basically made the pricing model such that it would align so that their sellers would get money. And the way we do it, it was as follows. Every time a customer would use Databricks, we would make sure that they would get two separate bills. One bill from Databricks for the software they used on Databricks, but we also used the services such that they would get a bill directly from the cloud vendor. Ah, and that bill they get, clever. yeah, on the infrastructure. And that means that bill from the cloud vendor, that's paying some seller's uh, salary at that cloud company. And, and then that, what we that, did- that, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Did that yeah. tend, uh, make it complex for the customer? Well, uh, you know, they get anyway. They anyway have an AWS bill. They would have had that anyway. But for using Databricks, they're getting two bills. One from the cloud company, one from us. The one from the cloud company is paying the salary of the salesperson in that account from the cloud vendor. And right. then what we did is we trained our whole sales team that every time you bump into a seller from Amazon or Microsoft or so on, show up and tell them immediately, hey, this is how much money I made you. You know, I sold this much Databricks. It's this many virtual machines. And, you know, you're welcome. And, you know, the sellers, you know, would kind of think, wow, these guys are kind of suckers. They're kind of doing my job for me and I make money. So that way we were able to incentivize the sales teams of these companies to sort of push us. This other company, that, the way they were doing it, the ones that, you know, the sellers hated, they would just charge one bill that included all the infrastructure and everything. And then they would in turn pay Amazon. But the problem is that only one salesperson at Amazon makes the money, one seller, the person that's responsible for this other data company. Uh, so that way there's much more friction. So we could eliminate this friction from the get-go, even though we didn't actually even have any partnership with, with any of these cloud vendors initially. And I think that helped us a lot get sort of traction in the early days. Yeah, no, that's really, that, that's really clever. And it's so smart, you know, so much of, you know, when companies get big, so often startups will focus on their product teams, which is generally dangerous and hard because they have some competing agenda. It's almost never, other than an acquisition, there's nothing that makes a product person a hero um, in their company and dealing with you. But the sales team have very clean incentives. So if you can fit into their yeah. incentive structure, you can partner in a really effective way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we noticed immediately that the product teams in these clouds, they want to build it themselves. They want to build whatever you have, right? It's just the nature of product people, uh, you know, engineers. They want to build. Uh, so, but the sellers, as you said, they're just coin operated. So just make them more money and you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And then, uh, so why, why Azure? Well, I mean, in the early days, uh, Amazon was the only game in town. It was many years ago. So they were the biggest cloud. So it was hard to sort of strike a really amazing partnership with sort of the biggest player in town, right? We're a small potato. Right. Uh, but what, what we noticed is that, you know, Microsoft had something that was really unique. Microsoft had these enterprise agreements with 70% of Fortune 2000. So it means they already had this relationship going back 40 years because they've been selling Office to them. They've been selling Windows to them. So we figured out that if we do a really big partnership with Microsoft and they have the momentum because they're growing really, really fast, uh, we can actually get on these enterprise agreements. And that way we can, we almost have 70% of Fortune 2000 already as customers then automatically. All we need to do is make them click on the product and use it. 
That way we can grow it really fast and we can convince Microsoft that, look, we're already, you know, big on Amazon, you know, so we have this awesome product on Amazon. Wouldn't you want that on your cloud too? Uh, so that's the lever we used. And then we were thinking, you know, once we get the Microsoft partnership, we can turn around and probably do the same partnership without the cloud vendors. Because, you know, it's sort of, with the cloud vendors, it's a little bit the race. If you got it from one of them, the others want to give it to you too, right? Because they don't want to be at the disadvantage with respect to the others. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, interesting. And then, uh, so you actually just did a round um, of financing and you had Google, Microsoft, and Amazon and Salesforce as investors. Like, how do you do that? Because those guys always look at each other on the cap table and go, well, I want whatever he has, I ha I need. And, and whatever they have, I want. Um, and then I want something more because I hate those guys and I'm Amazon and my cloud is bigger than their cloud. So how did you fit them all into your round? I mean, it's a big well, round, so that that helped, I guess. You know, yeah, the high valuation. I mean, yeah, I mean, the answer is the same as the the earlier question. We mm -hmm. align super closely with their field. Make sure their sellers make money. That yeah. means the sellers will go back and report up that we love working with Databricks. They're awesome. They're they're making me you know a lot of money. Uh, yeah. And by being tightly aligned with their sales teams, they all wanted to be close to it. We also aligned the strategy of the company with the cloud vendors so that it wouldn't go against the strategy of the cloud vendors. So the cloud vendors, they're pushing to store all the world's data in these data lakes in the cloud. So we aligned yeah. with that strategy and we said, yeah, we're, we, we were going to drive even more data to your data lakes. And they all want that because data right now has a gravity because the cloud vendors are basically in this you know, competitive space now they're, where they're all trying to get everybody's data into their data lake. Because once that data is there, it has gravity and it's not going to leave. So we align with that top incentive and yep. make sure that we're a killer app for their data lakes where all the data resides. Um, so then it makes a lot of sense for them to partner with us uh, uh, and invest in Databricks. So it's you really, know, I mean, the, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, it's even more than, um, you know, you're not going to leave. It's that everything orbits around the data. So if you have any kind of analytics tools or anything that needs the data, if those tools live in a different cloud than your data, then you have to pay the bandwidth charges in and out. And so they know if they have the data, they've got you for everything you're doing. Yeah, that's why it's free to move data into their data lakes, but it costs a lot of money to move data out of it. Your, <laughs> right, yeah, 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 what they call right. it, the, the Roche Motel, exactly. <laughs> exactly, and you know, it's like, it's not like they can, one of the cloud vendors can lose the data war, but then do other things on top of it. At that point, to your mm -hmm. point, it's done. So they have to get the data. So align with that strategy, and they will like you. If you, however, choose another strategy where you say, no, the data should be somewhere else. I have a separate system. Store your data with me. Mm -hmm. Then you're kind of going against the core strategy that these companies will, will, will want. And I bet you they're not going to come around and invest in your company then. <laughs> yeah, no, no <laughs> doubt. No doubt. Uh, they, yeah, they're... They, they, they may be big and sometimes slow, but they, they do get to the point. Um, so different kind of question. You know, one thing that every startup has to do to survive is get to product market fit um, on their first product. Um, but one thing that most companies don't do is get to product market fit on their second or third or fourth products. Usually, you know, most tech companies have one big product and that's all they ever get to in their lifetime. So how do you think about 
overcoming that challenge? And, you know, how did you do it with, you know, you started with Spark, but then you did ML Flow and Delta and some other, you know, pretty significant products in the market. So, you know, what was the challenge and how did you overcome it? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And I'm curious actually what you're seeing in, in the portfolio companies. Um, I mean, I think, first of all, there's a book that was really helpful for us was, uh, you know, if you look at Jeffrey Moore's Zone to Win, mm-hmm. he talks about how you treat existing business versus a new business. And mm-hmm. you kind of need almost two different companies for something that's an existing business that you're driving and right. building a new product team. So very similar to Innovator's Dilemma because the new product will have a new persona. It has different use cases. The critical user journeys will be different. So everything is different about that new product. So you really want to kind of isolate that team so that they're not affected by the existing products that you have, by the existing way of thinking that you already have, because you're not going to be able to actually innovate with something different in that case. So you kind of want to almost isolate the team separately. Uh, So that's how we did it. We put a separate team, uh, separate charter, even told them uh, that, hey, this is your startup within the company Mm -hmm. now. The rest of the company is a big company. You're a tiny little startup. We're not going to follow the processes of the bigger company, Databricks. We're iterating fast on this. We're going to work super close with customers. We're going to meet. We're going to recreate what we did in 2013 when we started the company originally, but now many, many years later. Uh, And that way, we sort of were able to spin up basically a startup within the startup. But you have to make sure that the org chart matches that. If you're trying to do it within your existing org structure, mm-hmm. you, it probably won't go. It will slow, there'll be pushback, and it won't let you actually kind of think out of the box. Yeah, I you don't know, know what you're I, saying. Yeah. Yeah, so the that's definitely so one mistake people make is they try and build it in the context of the current org structure. And that it just gets deprioritized away, right? Because you have whatever's in the current org structure has got like a thousand times the revenue of the thing or infinitely more revenue than the, the than the new thing. And so, it, you know, that will usually, it'll die of starvation and then it will be burdened with process and um, requirements, you know, everything from, you know, very high-end security requirements to to whatever um, and never get off the ground. So that's definitely one problem. Another problem is uh, talent. So what I see happen in companies is you have your first product, whatever it could be, Spark, it could be Clubhouse, um, and you built it and everybody who's good is on that thing. And then the people who are really good you know, have bigger and bigger jobs in it. So they become like critical architects or managers or what have you. And it's a very prestigious thing in the company. And so then you have some new thing that's nothing. And I'm building my career at Databricks and I want to work on the important thing, not the nothing thing. And, but the nothing thing is where you need the best talent because the hardest thing to do in, in, the tech business is to get the product market fit. Like that's by far the hardest product thing to do. It's way harder than doing the next version of something in many ways. Um, and it takes a kind of a unique skill set for somebody who understands engineering, customers, product, um, everything. And so I see a lot of companies not kind of put their best people on the new thing. And, and you know, that'll cause an issue. Um, so those are 
you know, some of the things that mess it up. And then the third thing, which, you know, you didn't have this challenge, but sometimes a new product requires a new channel. And that gets really hard um, to, you know, build a second channel in a company. Yeah, it's a different channel. It's a different partner ecosystem as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, that you need to make it successful. Um, it could be, yeah, different sales motion. Uh, so separate these out. And I found the people that love to work on these early products are different from the people that like to work on the existing mature <laughs> products that have product market fit. You in fact, yeah. find them. They get bored quickly. You know, once they've created something, they want to move on. So move those people to the new thing and mm -hmm. let them kind of operate like a startup that's iterating yeah. fast. Um, yeah. The other thing we did is for these, we always had a couple more key customers that we stayed super close to. And we <laughs> tried to make sure that we're iterating quickly with them. When we started original Databricks, we had one customer. Mm -hmm. uh, it was Conviva, actually. And <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Jan's whole company. <laughs> yeah, and we kind of built the product for them, and we iterated super quickly with them, and they were actually using it and making use of it. So we could make sure that at, at least this one enterprise company is getting value out of it. We do the yeah. same thing with the second and the third products. You know, so when we built the Delta product, we worked super closely with Apple, and they were actually mm -hmm. iterating with us uh, on a daily basis, and we're cutting software for them all the time outside of the normal processes to make sure mm -hmm. that we're really getting that product market fit uh, yeah. before we sort of expanded it. Um, so th those are really important. And the other thing I would say is we always looked at the existing products we had and what would be a synergy. So what would be mm -hmm. a synergistic next move strategically? So we had already built Spark, which let people organize all their data and access all the data wherever it is. And with that, we already had the data. So that's a great starting point, but that data was messy and it wasn't reliable. So yeah. the next project we did was all about how to make that data reliable and bring value to it and make it more high quality. And that was the Delta project. And then once we had the high quality you know, data, we moved on to the next one, which is sort of machine learning on top of it. Because now you have the data, yes. now you can actually finally do machine learning. So we try to find adjacencies where we would get synergy effects from the existing product portfolio we had. Yeah, yeah, no, that's... Yep, yep, yep. No, those are the, those are all the things, and, and they're, they're the the problem is uh, I think that CEOs run into is they hyper optimize the business they're in, and if you're optimizing that, you kind of the enemy of that is a new thing um, because you have you dilute focus, you dilute your talent, um, and everything else, and so it's it's kind of hard to get over the hump on that. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I see that's always funny is, you know, somebody will have 100 engineers on a product or maybe not 100, but like, like say they'll have 20 people on the existing product. Um, and then there's something else that they need to do, but they can't even take one person and put them on that. And I'm always like, well, look, the, <laughs> the difference between 19 and 20 people on a software engineering project, 19 might be better. But the difference between zero and one is is vast because nothing is going to fucking happen if you don't have at least one person working on it. And one person can go through the whole problem space. And, you know, if they're good enough, if you have somebody like Matei or somebody like that, then they can go figure out a hell of a lot by themselves. And, uh, you know, it, but it is a psychological trap I think people get into because, you know, you make a commitment, you want to show that like, okay, this thing's going to be on time. We have customers who are waiting for it, you know, and uh, you get caught up in, and you outsmart yourself basically. Um, yeah. Like, if, you have, yeah. if you have good product market fit, you find yourself having these, you know, 
great problems to have, which is you're always behind and you need to deliver more features and there's people are, and there's a competitive pressure and all that. So you always feel like you have, you're understaffed and you're behind and you have to double down more in the product. But to your yeah. point, just carve out a few people. It won't actually hurt the business. You know, take take a few people, put it on the side, make, make an investment on a future uh, product uh, direction that you could go in and let people take a little bit of risk with that. Uh, yeah. It won't hurt the existing one. Yeah, no, for sure. So let, let's talk a little bit about kind of on-prem versus cloud um, and, you know, particularly people with open source products uh, run into this thing because the open source product is always on-prem um, and then you want to make a cloud business out of it so you can actually make money um, and, and, you know, not find yourself selling like support. Uh, but a lot of companies end up with kind of some on-premise and some cloud, I call that half sassing it. <laughs> um, you're, you're not quite a SaaS, you're half a SaaS. Uh, and then, um, you know, why did you, because you, when you guys started Databricks in 2013, you know, on-prem was a much, much bigger deal then, um, but you still never, you still never sold an on-prem product. Uh, how'd you make that decision? Was it a good decision? Did you give up market by doing it? Um, and what would you advise people to do on it? How do you think about that? Yeah, look, so this one, I have a lot of scars, uh, as you know. And, you, yeah. you know, you did a whole company on uh, cloud business, maybe a little bit too early. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, a lot bit too early. <laughs> so, you know, um, so we were also learning from that, from loud cloud. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you a story. I mean, it's, it was difficult. You definitely go, you're giving up market. You're giving up a big market opportunity by, say, picking the cloud because the majority of people are on-prem. But the, the thing is this, you have to pick something, you have to believe that you can do something uh, that's different from everyone else to be able to beat these existing companies. You know, everyone when we started was on-prem. So how are we gonna be beat them if we don't have a strategy that's asymmetric? Uh, mm -hmm. And it was hard, you know, every time I hired an executive, they would come and say, you know, I have a great idea for six months. We should pivot to on-prem. And in fact, I had a executive strategy offsite at some point many years mm -hmm. ago. And all my go-to-market leaders basically turned to me. First ones turned to me and said, hey, I think we really should go on-prem and we should pivot the strategy. And I said, oh, well, I, I remember, <laughs> I actually had a, that, that's funny because I had a conversation with Jeff Stump where we were trying to uh, hire a sales guy for uh, Databricks. And um, he was like, we can't get a good executive in that company because they all think Databricks missed the boat and Cloudera is going to lap them because Databricks refused to go on-prem. And I, I remember listening to him thinking, like, you're talking to a bunch of fucking idiots, but it's funny that, like, if you were selling, that's where the market was. So it wasn't, it wasn't stupid. It was just that you were seeing the world through a very specific prism. Yeah, well, that's where, what they were hearing, right, from the market. All the big yeah. enterprises were saying, I don't want to put my data in the cloud, I don't trust it. So they were just bringing this feedback back. So this strategic offsite where we just have, we're supposed to, together as a team, discuss strategy. My first exec turns around, I think it was sales, and said, you know, I really think we should now go on-prem. And I sort of yeah. shut it down and I said, that's bad, that's good, that's a bad strategy, you know. Why would we, like, coming up from behind now, many years after these people are already established, they have the investments, why, what, what makes us think we could beat that? Let's pick an asymmetric. 
But then the second exec that's on the go-to-market side, I think it was a marketing person said, no, I actually think we should go on pro. And then the third one and fourth, and actually I had then the whole go-to-market uh, team kind yeah. of turn on me and say, you know, we actually kind of agree, all of us, that we should do this. And I think I had to use the CEO card and say, you know, that you guys might be right, but if I'm going to be CEO in this company, we're going to stay in the cloud and kind of like just shut it down that way, you know, not... Yeah, no, no, well, but that's, a, you, you know... It's so interesting because that's what makes decisions hard. It's not that you don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. It's that what you know to do is the opposite. You know, like you, you didn't know at 100% that you were no. right. But you, you yeah, yeah, because you never know that. But and, and then everybody's against you. And that that to me is kind of like the definition of a hard decision is when it's super unpopular – um, do you trust yourself to do it? Because those are the only decisions that actually matter. Exactly. Because if you did what they said, they, they don't even need you as CEO. They came to that conclusion on their own, <laughs> right? Exactly. Like, what, what are you doing? So the only time you actually add value as a leader is when you're in a situation like that where everybody thinks it's a bad idea, but you think it's a good idea. And, you know, I see so many leaders cave into their team on that and I'm like, if you do that, you're not even a leader because they can do every decision you make without you if you go with what's popular, which is, by the way, you know, I think what's, you know, one of the huge problem in the country is politicians, you know, I think Nixon started it, but like polling the population to sing what they want and then doing that. It's like, well, why the hell do we need a president if you're going to do that? You know, yeah, that's nothing. Stuff. Yeah, you just did nothing. You know, we already yeah, knew I, I that that's what point. we wanted. That's a great point. I mean, honestly, I see the CEO job as that. What are those pivotal decisions that you made that were difficult, that were not obvious? Yeah. Maybe even the majority of people didn't agree with you that then turned out to be really, really critical for your organization. I mean, you know, uh, when I even when I interview executives, I kind of yeah. apply what I call the wonderful life hypothesis to them. Which is wonderful mm -hmm. life is this movie, you know, around Christmas time yeah. every year, you know, it's a black and white movie. Uh, it's this, you know, this, this gentleman who sort of looks back at his life and sort of he's suicidal and it's like, what would the world have been like if you were not in it? Yeah. What would the world yeah. look like if you were not in it? Right. How did you make a difference? And whenever I'm interviewing an executive, that's what I'm trying to figure out. How was that company that you were part of different? What were the kind of, where did you really make yeah. change or take a decision that other people didn't want or didn't? And that mattered. And that changed the trajectory of the company you were in. Because a lot of execs you hire, yeah. They just tell you, oh, then I was at this company, then the company did this, and it was great times, and then we crushed it, and then we went to lots of markets, we made a lot of money, it was yeah. great times. But yeah. what did you do? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were, were, were you in the passenger seat, the back seat, or the driver's seat? Yeah, that's what I wonder. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It was yeah. a great time. Yeah, that's funny. So, I, actually, I, I want to explain something because I got a text on it. So, when we say on-prem, what we're meaning is on the customer's premises. So they deploy the software as opposed to in the cloud, um, which is cloud software. Uh, and um, actually, let me kind of add to what you're saying. I think, you know, one of the problems that I see with companies who try to go both on-premise and in the cloud is the processes are entirely different. Like the software may have some shared code or whatever, but the process for releasing the software 
for developing the schedule, for selling the software, for supporting the software is all different. So if you have a product that's both on-premises and in the cloud, you have two different companies. And nobody is actually willing to build the two companies. So what you really have is you have one good company and one really sorry company. <laughs> and that's why I think a lot of uh, open source companies who do that, you know, get beaten to death by Amazon and, you know, other cloud providers who actually know how to build cloud software. That's 100% true. And honestly, I think the reason why Databricks succeeded uh, was because we focused so much in the cloud. Because what's happening yeah. is running a cloud software company is really, really hard to operate the software in the cloud. It's a very different way, and I can get into how it's different. But it's fundamentally different in how you build the software, how you release it, how you test it. All those things are very, very different. But more importantly, mm -hmm. uh, the same software in the cloud is cheaper. Because yeah. you know the, the cost of goods to produce that software in the cloud is... There's only one copy of it. It's multi-tenant. So software in the cloud ends up typically being much cheaper. And as a result right, and then that, they, don't, they don't have to yeah. buy computers and hire guys to administer the software, right? Exactly. So, so yeah. you know, it's, 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 it's much cheaper to do that in the cloud. As a result of that, if you're doing both, I think this is the thing that killed our competitors, and this is why I really didn't want to go on-prem, was that they had a big on-prem business. So then they faced yeah. innovators' dilemma in which, okay, I'm getting $2 million dollars on-premises from this customer. But if they move into the cloud, that's going to shrink down to a million or maybe half a million because they're just going to pay for what they use and pay yeah. as you go. Do I want to really make that change? Maybe not. So then you end up being on the wrong history. I think I yeah, broke you up broke there. up a little. Uh, where you're kind of, yeah, where you're preventing your customers with doing... Whoops, you broke up again. Yeah. <laughs> No, exactly. So you don't you want to be with your customers yeah. as they move into the cloud because that's the right strategy for them. You don't want to be a, you know have perverted incentives just because you think you're going to make less money because then you know that's that's a losing proposition. Right, right. You do what's wrong for the customer because they ask you to. That's always dangerous. <laughs> oh, exactly. very dangerous. It, it, it's fine in the short term. It's not so good in the long term. Uh, yeah. Okay, kind of last. Question on this line, and then we'll get into some management stuff. Um, so, what's the so when you think about open source software um, and monetizing it, it's tricky because by it's open source, so anybody can grab your source code and go offer their own SaaS Spark or what have you. Um, so, what's the best way to kind of have a good open source product because uh, you need it to be good to get the developers and get the momentum and, and the industry interest and the ecosystem around you. Um, but how do you do that and not get cannibalized by, you know, much bigger companies who will grab your source code and then run it? Um, kind of like Amazon did with, with Spark, right? Like they've got a Spark product. Uh, like, why did they not eat you alive given their size and heft and aggressiveness? That's a great question. Um, you know, um, I, the reason is simple. I think cloud software is just very different to manage. It's really, really hard to do. It's, it's hard to have a cloud offering. And I think a lot of customers or a lot of companies underestimated how difficult it is to run the software in the cloud. And guess what? The cloud vendors are actually really, really good at running services in the cloud. That's what they've been doing for 10, 15 years. So yeah. they can easily pick up open source software and offer it at you know, really good price, 
and it's awesome experience for the customers and they can do that really, really well. So I think what has happened in the market is that you had a bunch of companies that were not in the cloud, they were on-prem, they had created these open source uh, technologies that were awesome, but they didn't have any cloud business. Then when the yeah. customers told them, hey, we want to move into the cloud, first of all, their incentives were kind of maybe perverted, so they didn't really want those customers to move into the cloud because revenue would get smaller because of innovators dilemma. But then eventually when the customer said, look, I'm going to the cloud, they reluctantly said, okay, fine, we'll launch a cloud offering as well with our own open source software. But then mm-hmm. lo and behold, they noticed that, oh my God, the cloud vendors already have uh, offering with my open source software. And by the way, it's better than what I'm providing. Why is it better? Well, it's because it's really, really hard to run cloud software. It's not that easy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, know, you have to release the software every day. You have to test it live. You're on the hook for security, reliability. You have to make it multi-tenant. These things are really, really difficult to do. So as a result, uh, they get upset. And then what they've done, this is a bad idea. So this doesn't answer the question mm-hmm. of what you should do, the best way to monitor it. What you should not <laughs> yeah, you're do. just telling me what I shouldn't do. <laughs> yeah, you should definitely not do what some folks are now doing, which is they're saying, we'll change the license of the open source model and we'll restrict it in various ways so the cloud vendors can't pick up the software and do this. Yeah, 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 right. You're going to win the legal battle against Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> actually, that's a great point because actually some of these cloud vendors have actually started a little bit sort of saying, hey, we can actually ignore the AGPL license yeah. and, you know, we can run oh, it yeah, anyway. Yeah, what are you yeah. going to do? Hey, what are you yeah, going to do? Sue, sue me. <laughs> you know, exactly. like those guys, come on. But it's yeah, also that, a bad idea. That was the I could do. Yeah, it's a bad idea because open source software, the whole idea is it's open so anyone can use it. And the yeah. reason you're using open source software, you're, you're using that as a business strategy as a company, is because you want to get adoption and build community so millions of people download it, almost like if it was a business to consumer business that goes viral with millions and millions of people using it, and then you monetize it. But if you mess yeah. with the license, now you won't get that adoption. So then why are you open sourcing it in the first place if you're going to mess with the license? Because it's going to restrict that very, all the benefits of open source from a business perspective, which is the adoption it gets. So, right, right. So you're going to do yeah. the wrong thing for the customer to help yourself competitively. You know, again, then, it kind of comes yeah. back to your earlier point where like if you're but, misguiding yeah. the customer, then you, you're probably going to end in a really bad spot. Yeah, and in that case, don't even open source it at all in the first place. Why are you even open source yeah. in the first place? If you don't want, if you're going to restrict usage of it, don't open source it. So I think the right thing to do, so how do you then do it? So how do we do it? How come we succeeded? Well, we were only in the cloud. We got really good at running software in the cloud, which is hard. And from the get-go, that's all we had. So we had to learn to swim in those waters because that's the only thing we know how to do. Uh, and then these days, when we develop software, we very clearly delineate which parts is open source, which part is proprietary. And the trick is this. Open source software is basically on-premises software that you release two, three times a year. Mm -hmm. The cloud version of it, if you make a really good cloud version of it, you can keep those pieces proprietary. Don't open source those pieces. The things that enable you to make it multi-tenant, so lots of different people can use it. The parts that enables you to get super fast performance out of it make it super reliable, make it super secure and encrypted, keep those things proprietary. Uh, now you're one step ahead of the cloud vendors uh, who have to catch up and add these capabilities themselves, which they're pretty good at. But if you're doing it from the get-go, you always have a head start. Yeah, yeah, no no doubt, no doubt. Okay, so let's get into the, the we had a few questions kind of left over from uh, you know questions on what we talked about last time, clarifying them. 
Uh, one is um, the last episode, there is seemingly, quote unquote, seemingly contradictory advice regarding managing executives. You say you should micromanage them and get wins early and transfer context intensely early. But also, if you start questioning their work, move on, like as in move on from the executive. A CEO should start questioning the exec when really the CEO is effing up managing. Could you articulate the nuance I'm missing here next time on how to decide and where to attribute the source of the issue? Um, I see, I see. Yeah, would you like me to start that one or you want to? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, no, no, please. Yeah, so here's the thing. Um, When you're micromanaging an executive, a new executive, so for, and what we talked about last time is like for the first 30 days, you want to, you know, maybe even meet with them every day and give them very specific instructions. And what you're trying to do is orient them to your company, your context. How do you get things done here? What are the real priorities here? How do you get a win in your first week on the job where everybody goes, okay, that person is making a difference? Um, that's what you're trying to do is kind of make it really, really, really clear to them what the game is because it's not the job that they did in their last company. It's a new job. And so you're orienting them into context. What we meant by, okay, when you start questioning their work, um, we're not talking about the context work. We're talking about, do they know how to do their job like that you hired them to do? You know, you hired a head of marketing. Do you now know more about marketing than they do? Um, because if you do, or do you like, are you looking at the marketing work they're doing going, that doesn't make any sense. You know, that becomes a problem as opposed to you're going, oh my God, I would have never thought to run that kind of campaign. Like that's freaking genius. And, and that's kind of the thing. And I, I give you like a stupid example. Um, you know, actually at Databricks, we had a head of marketing who gave a presentation in the board meeting. And Ali, you weren't CEO then. I think Jan was CEO. But when the exec gave the, the presentation in the board meeting, like literally the math didn't work. <laughs> and, and I thought it was the funniest shit in the world because I was like, okay, this person obviously can't run marketing at this company because like we're in a room with, there had to be like six or seven PhDs in computer science in the room. And I'm going like, can any of you guys make this math work? And everybody's like, no, no, that math doesn't work. And so, you know, like just to get to that level where like, okay, you you really can't do this here. Like maybe you could do it in a different company, but you can't be like bad at math and be on the executive staff of Dataworks. Like <laughs> that's just the most absurd shit like ever. You, you're, you're not a cultural fit. You know, we're good at math in this company. And so, you know, that kind of, and it was like arithmetic. It wasn't like, <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, linear regression in hyperspace. It was arithmetic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you get into those kinds of things, which, you know, are, are kind of obvious. But when you're a CEO, you're trying to, you know, a lot of times you you over want to develop an executive, but you really can't. All you can do is give context. You can't develop their skill set. The skill set has to be there. And that's why you pay them so much money in equity. And nobody in the company is going to accept that they got that kind of money and equity and you have to teach them how to do the job. Like that's never going to happen. That's awesome. I remember that board meeting. That was not our favorite board meeting at Data Rick. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah that, was, that was a tough one. Um, 
No, but that's absolutely true. So it seems like contradictory. Like you want me to micromanage an exec, but then you're saying, hey, the moment you're questioning anything they're doing, you should let them go. So it seems like it's at odds. But I think timing is the answer, right? It's like, there's a time dimension here. The You can't micromanage all your execs forever. You, you cannot possibly be scaling your company and be doing that. So they will right. be done, running a lot of their business themselves. And you'll have plenty of opportunity to observe what they're doing. So the micromanaging is the beginning to get them just settled in. Or if they have really, you know, some one weakness or a particular weakness where you want to augment them on one particular dimension that they just, they're not great at. Uh, but, you know, on anything else, once they're running their show, as soon as you start questioning, hmm, how's this thing going? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, you're probably done. Yeah, almost, almost certainly done. Because um, <laughs> you always ask yourself that question too late. I mean, I, my uh, mentor, Ken Coleman, um, said to me once, I've never fired somebody too early in my entire career. And he's in his 70s now. So <laughs> if he's never done that, you, you know that, that, that that's not a thing. Um, so next question, we are hiring a couple of new executives on the leadership team. What are the things you would do to ensure success of these new hires? What are the leadership team dynamics to encourage and what to watch out for. Additionally, how do you determine, well, actually, some of this we, we covered last time, but is there function-specific advice, sales versus engineering uh, versus finance that's different when you hire an exec? Yeah, those are good questions. I mean, you can talk about these uh, endlessly. Um, I think, you know, my favorite thing is to make sure that you actually um, make all these execs come in and do a two-hour, three-hour session with your team uh, mm -hmm. and present their one-year plan for you. But, yeah. that, but really what I want to do is spend time with them, with the exec team. And then we're going to kind of, we're going to sort of hang out as if we were doing uh, off-site together. And we're going to ask some yeah. questions, we're going to interact. And really the, the thing right. you're going to try to suss out is, will they work well in this team? Like if they're not good at arithmetic, can we figure that out here when we're talking and, you know, we'll, we'll figure out if we're gelling well together or not. And then usually take them out to dinner afterwards. So you almost get like almost a whole day with them. Now this has been hard to do in the pandemic, uh, but that way you kind of figure out, do I like this person? Are we culturally aligned aside from all the smart stuff and all the other things that you're going to do? Uh, are we mind meld? Cause you know, I'm going to work 10 hours a day with you for the next half a decade. Uh, and we're going to go through a lot of difficult times together. Uh, do I want to do that with you? Or, you know, we kind of are like oil, you know, oil and water and we don't like each other. Uh, so that's, yeah. I think that's an important litmus test that a lot of people don't do because they're so cerebral. They're going through like, yeah. oh, do they check this box? Do they check that box? Do they have the right CV? Have they seen this? What was their answer to this? Was it the good answer? Was it the wrong answer? Do I agree with this? Do they, which color do they like? Mm -hmm. Rather than checking like, do I like this person? Do I get along with them? Will we be able to sort difficult things out together for the next many, many years? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that I, I, I think that's that, that's a great kind of point, which is like so much of it. You know, I think people overtrain on. Okay, we have to get somebody who, in the interview process, feels like one of us. Um, which, by the way, makes it really hard to get any diversity on the team, uh, just because. You know, like, it's really hard to do that in an interview if you're from a different background. But if you can, like, hang out, learn something from them and get along with them, then then you can make it work. Whereas if you just want to, like, 
poke your eyes out with a fork after spending an hour with the person, then you know it's not going to work. And and so doing that with the team is a, is a really smart idea. Yeah, um, lots of people. Yeah, lots of yeah. people say, "Hey, you have to match the culture. Make sure, like, you know, if you read any books, they say make sure that yeah. when you're hiring executives, that they're cultural match for your culture." And it, you know, it always yeah. seems nebulous. Like, what does that mean? How do I check if they're they're, you know, they fit our culture. Do I ask them the culture? Principles? Yeah. And, and can they adapt, right? Like, you know, just maybe they come from a different culture, but they can adapt to your culture, right? Like it's, you can't just do a litmus test on that. I agree with you. Yeah. So spend time with them and see if they really, you know, if you over many hours get along and kind of figure it out, they don't need to be like you, they can be different, but can you, can, can you guys spend time together and discuss problems and figure out and learn something from each other? then things look good. If you can't, then it's really awkward and it's not, you know, and you want to get out of it, uh, then there's a culture of mismatch. Yep, 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 no, for sure. This next question is really good. Um, okay, so we have an amazing culture here, at, I'll leave the name out, and want to preserve it as much as possible while we're rapidly growing from 200 to 500 people this year. We invest a lot on onboarding, training, communicating clear company values, and guiding principles to drive good behavior aligned with our culture. To what degree, if at all, should founders be involved in coaching slash mentoring new team leads as they join the organization to ensure they embody our culture, core values, and pass it on to their teams? Why don't you go first? Yeah, so this is an interesting one. Um, I think as you grow, like there's a real scale problem with the kind of founders thinking of themselves as the cultural enforcers. Not that you shouldn't. You you definitely need to. But, you know, if you're going to grow it from 200 to 500, but that, that's really fast hiring. And, you're, you know, these people who you hire are coming from different cult- cultures that are not yours. Um, and oftentimes when you hire that many people, you know, basically you're hiring more people than you have. Um, you're going to hire them in clusters. So you might get like five people from Google or something like that, or, or you get eight people from Facebook or who knows. Um, and so now they're coming not only from a different culture, but with others who are also from that culture um, who are going to reinforce their cultural habits, uh, which may not be like hours, um, which is going to be, you know, kind of a a real challenge because they're just going to have a different frame of reference. Um, so as you think about, you know, there's training and this is what we do and so forth, but you're going to need uh, kind of real object lessons and real kind of broad-based culture carriers. So this is when you you know, and Amazon has this uh, idea, which is called um, the bar raisers. And what they really are, are cultural enforcers. Um, and, you know, they put them in the interview and that kind of thing. But they also kind of like run around the company and going like, are, are we on culture? Are we, you know, kind of adhering to our own culture? And it's really important that you kind of have enough of that so that the new people assimilate to your culture and not vice versa. And this is, you know, from the ex- executives on down. And you you just have to be like, and this is why it's really good to have a culture that's not too elaborate, because you have to be, you know, if you're not willing to enforce it, then it's not even a thing if you're growing at that rate. 
yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing to watch out for actually in this scenario, and I've seen this is when an exec comes in and they, they say, hey, I have these two, three people that are phenomenal. They worked with me in these previous three companies as well. And that's one of the strengths they bring in, right? They can hire these people that they have with them and they've been together forever. And then before you know it, you have 10, 15 people uh, from some company that's already, you know, yeah. they've been together many, many years. Uh, yeah. You really should watch out for it because they're basically bringing in the culture of those previous companies. They won't even know it. Uh, they're so brainwashed in those companies that they worked for before and they all work in a particular way. So you have to really pay attention and you have to kind of prepare your organization and your leaders to kind of actually make it really clear that they have to break from that old culture. And, you know, what you did in the past is awesome, those places you were, but we're different here and we have a different culture. Uh, and, you know, please put all that stuff behind you because the way you did things there is different here. We have our ways. Uh, and, you know, that I try to make that really explicit. I also try to avoid to hire too many people from the same company. I think it's actually problematic. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think so. It is, um, <laughs> it gets very dangerous very fast. And it's, it's the easiest thing for a recruiter to do because what your recruiters always do when they add somebody in is they say, who else is good at your company? Um, and then that can lead to many, many, many people coming from there. Uh, so you talked before, Ali, about um, how do you get to multiple hit products, but how do you pick what the next product is? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a difficult subject to know what has product market fit. But in my opinion, you take the existing product in your ha that you have and you figure out what's the most synergistic thing that you should that you could do to this product that could sort of expand the use cases, maybe slightly expand the things that you can do with it. Uh, so that this becomes, so the existing position you have is a strength for the next product that you're doing. So in our case, we had Spark, it was an ETL tool, but you know, how do we actually get down to the downstream use cases that you would use that data for in you know, machine learning in our case? Uh, that was a strength. So we already knew how to do the data processing and that's the really hard part of machine learning. So when you combine the two, you got sort of one plus one equals three. Uh, so that was the thinking behind it, that it's not just, we're not just going to pick something to do. And the problem is a lot of people, they say, oh, we should just go after a really big TAM. The TAM for that thing is really big. So we should go after that. You hear a lot of people telling you that kind of advice. Like, oh, you know, I don't think, I think we should really do this other, like they give you something completely random. I think we should build a UI for that thing. It's a big TAM and there's a company in that space, they're making a lot of money. Why don't we do that? Yeah. And uh, you just won't get any synergies. So what are the chances that you're coming up from behind many years later, building a product that already exists in that big tar market? In fact, big TAMs typically means really great companies in them already dominate them. So more yeah, barriers that, to entry. That, that's a really great point. And I think that this is where kind of, there's a certain kind of business school training that's very misleading in that, you know, when you analyze companies and products after the fact, they look very different than they do, you know, when they get started. Um, and, you know, when you're going forward in history, history looks very different because you're dealing with, you know, 2% of the data. And then when you look backwards in your business case study, you've got 100% of the data and it's not the same thing. Um, and, you know, when you, when you do a new product, um, 
you kind of have to ask yourself, particularly like if you're, uh, well, if you're really any kind of company, it's consumer or enterprise, what do people want to buy from us? Not what do people want yeah. to buy, but what do yeah. they want to buy from us? Because that's really the relevant question uh, because you're already like something in the mind of the, of the consumer and, you know, they're not going to want, I don't care how good a filet mignon McDonald's makes. Nobody wants to buy that from them, you know, or how big the market is. Like, it just doesn't, you know, like, that's not what I want from you. Don't deliver me that. It's going to upset me. Um, you know, I want a Big Mac from McDonald's. I want that kind of thing, like the integrated cheap food, not the like expensive high-end food. Um, so that's the, you know, and I think people, you know, when they come at it from that way, will often miss it. Um, really, really. Yeah, if you have point. a strength, yeah, if you have an amazing strength, and you can yeah. see it can be applied to get leverage somewhere else, that's when you should do yeah. it. So that you get some synergies. I mean, my favorite is Porsche figuring out that. You know, okay, we haven't we have, we do sports cars, so you know that's what we do. Yeah. But we also have an amazing brand, and then we have all these families that they want to associate themselves. They're still they still these dads in these companies and other in these in these families. They still want to have a flashy car that's kind of sporty, but it can't be a tiny little sports car that fits two people. You know, they put the whole family in it, and then they came up with this whole series of models that are basically sort of big family cars, and it's sort of a you know massive success for them. Uh, so they leverage the strength that they had, which is their brand awareness and the, that brand that everybody wants to associate with themselves. All right. I'm a sporty family dad here or family mom or soccer mom. Um, so I think that's that's how we think about it. The other thing I think is hard is how much should you invest in this kind of stuff? How much should you yeah. invest in new products? Uh, and I think the big fallacy is you're going to have a lot of pushback from the go-to-market team. Who says, look, I have customers that want to pay me 10 million or 20 million if we build this, this. We should build what brings in the most amount of revenue. Uh, and you should certainly do that to some extent. That's that's the typical thing the company should do. You know, the yeah. things the customer wants, you should build it. Yeah, but you, but, but you don't know what that is, you know, particularly if you're creating the market. Yeah. So I think you also, what we do is we invest in things ahead of the game. So like some of the machine learning things we're doing that's not a big market and we don't make a lot of revenue on it. And actually I don't expect to make tons of money on some of the machine learning things we are doing, some of the AI stuff we're doing mm -hmm. right now, but that market will grow. It's growing fast. It's tiny right now, but it's going to become huge eventually. So invest ahead of the game now and spend some resources. So in some sense, if you analyze what we're doing at Database, you'd say, Hey, these, these guys are actually not, it's not a sound investment philosophy. They're investing a lot on this tiny market and they're not making much revenue out of it. But I see it more like it's the seeds of, something that will be great because that market is growing and it's going to be big, huge in many years. I think a mistake a lot of leaders do is they look at how big markets are today, not how fast they're growing. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that's exactly right. You know, you, it's easy to size a market that's there. It's hard to size a market that's emerging or, or non-existent until you build a product that creates a market. Yeah, um, but, in some sense, and we, but it's not yeah. so hard, right? In some sense, it's not so hard to just Think about the future and think about what are the markets that are going to be really big. It, you know, with common sense, you can kind of figure it out, right? I mean, like Jeff Bezos, when he says, you know, I quit my job as investment banker and I thought, what's going to be huge? Well, it seems the internet is a pretty good force that's going to be around for many years to come. So why don't I just yeah. double down on an idea? And, you know, people like to buy stuff. Why not go in buying stuff on the internet? Like, it's pretty sound, <laughs> basic, common principles, right? But right then, back then, there was so much. But, but, but there, there was nobody on the internet when he said that. So it was a little, little like he, he had moved to the future, 
and said, okay, what's missing in this world that I'm living in? And then kind of went backwards to it. But That's you know, at that time, yeah. you know, at the time he started Amazon, you know, Bill Gates and Larry Ellison were still saying that the internet was a bunch of BS and that the information superhighway was going to win. That's true. But I remember also I did my uh, MBA around that time and yeah. you know, a long time ago. And I remember yeah. writing, I actually was writing about this. So the thesis and yeah. back then there was a lot of noise that, hey, I don't think the internet, will people really buy stuff on the internet? You can't trust it because, you know, they'll take your credit card. You should never put your credit card information. You should not buy stuff on the internet. It's just not trustworthy, yeah. you know, and you lose it. But, you know, pretty common sense reasoning would tell you that we're going to crack the code on that and it's going to be huge. Same thing with cloud computing. When that came about, a lot of people, Larry Ellison and others said, you know, that's just bogus. It's not going to make sense, so on. It's expensive. But if you actually look about the growth drivers and long-term, how these markets evolve, it's not that hard to actually figure out where the puck is going. In our case, it's not that hard to know that AI and machine learning is going to be gigantic and huge market eventually. <laughs> so invest yeah. in it now, and it's going to pay off in you know three years, five years. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Look, I think that's right. I, I, I do think that you know one of the things you have an advantage on in building kind of a follow-on product after the first product is you know more about the market than anybody. You know, so yeah. you, you, nobody knows more about the AI market than you. Um, so you have a huge advantage in picking the next product. But it's why you know you, you oftentimes the kind of bottoms up, what do I know customers are going to need is going to be stronger than the top down. Let's boil the ocean, look at everything in the world and pick the biggest TAM. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And that's actually a big advantage. I mean, early days when we started the company, we had Conviva as a customer. It was the only people we talked to were at Conviva. Uh, today, you know, with many thousand customers, we can get feedback and signal from so many more sources. Um, yeah. So that is actually some of the advantages, as you said, to having multiple products. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt. All right, well, we are up on the hour. So um, we thank everybody for coming. Thank you, uh, Margaret and Felicia, for the great questions. Thank you, Bryce, for coming up. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will see you next week on Boss Talk. Thanks. Thank you, Ali. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye, everyone. See you next week. Bye. Thanks, Felicia. Bye, Jules. Bye, Rajiv.